All righty. So uh, tonight um, we said uh, last time we said that I wasn't sure if it was going to be one or two more uh, um, classes about this particular topic about the Hanukkah one. Uh, it would have been nice if it was uh, next week because that way we'd be finishing it on Hanukkah itself. But I think given the amount of material which is left, so we're, we're probably going to finish it off tonight. And uh, turns out that it's an especially auspicious. Uh, night to go ahead and finish off this particular piece that we're studying because the author, which we mentioned, was a footner. So it turns out I didn't realize this, but his yard site is tonight, tomorrow. So it uh, works out well the, to go ahead and finish it on his uh, on his yard site. So that certainly is an exciting uh, thing. So with that said, we should go ahead and get the cracking on the uh, the piece so that hopefully we'll be able to uh, to complete it. Okay, so hopefully it's now on the screen in front of you there. So what we have is, where we left off the other day, was uh, Futner had told us that uh, he had drawn out or, or put together that, uh, that fundamental difference between the covenant of, uh, of Noah and the covenant of Avram Avinu and how that relates to Torah and how that relates to, well, how that relates to, are you guys still there? How that relates to all sorts of uh, all sorts of different uh, uh, different aspects. So now, beginning with this letter, and that took a long time to develop that uh, that idea. But now we're at. So now he says we're going to go, and we are going to begin to uh, uh, finish off or close off those concentric circles which we had created at the very beginning with all of the questions. So he says, "We are now." What was that, Bill? The uh... Uh, Abraham's covenant with God, does that include Ishmael? No. No. There's a passage which says, that your offspring will be known from the line of Yitzchak rather than from the line of, uh, of, uh, of Ishmael. So we, the, the Torah sp- uh, specifically mentions that uh, that idea, and then it's not even all of Yitzchak because it's only Yaakov, not Esav. The Gemara has a discussion about uh, about that. Okay, so now what he goes back to is he said we had this uh, interesting idea from the Ramban, where the Ramban had said that uh, Torah is unique. Torah is different than the other sciences because whereas the other sciences have specific laws which their science is bound by chemistry and physics and biology, and you can't violate those laws. And when you're making those types of equations, whatnot, there could only be one correct answer. Two plus two can only be four, and two plus two cannot be anything else. So the Ramban had said that the Torah doesn't really work that way. Torah doesn't have definitive answers to it. Torah has this flexibility or that it's a matter of perspective. So now comes back uh, Rafutner and he says... That ki ein ze kol anus chalusha shachachmat tamudenu. He says the fact that there isn't one definitive correct answer, let's just say for simplicity, to a shaila. You can ask multiple rabbanim the same shaila and get all sorts of different answers. So the fact that you get different answers, that there's not a definitive answer in Torah, is not indicative of chalusha. It's not a weakness of the wisdom of Torah. 
which may somebody must may misunderstand and think this is a, a, a weakness in understanding and that we don't have real rules. It's like, it's a it's a fluffy kind of wisdom because it doesn't have t- definitive answers. But he says, um uh, He says, because the opposite is actually true. Zuhi Rubusa Hagadola, the fact that we don't have definitive answers. And each Rishon could come along and could present a different idea. So this is Hirabusa Hagdola. This is the biggest Chiddush, meaning the greatest novelty. This is actually the beauty and the elevated stature of our wisdom, the fact that it does not have definitive answers. So if you speak to a scientist and you say, if you have a, an area of study which doesn't have definitive uh, doesn't have definitive answers. What do you think about that? So a real scientist will say, "Feh." If you can't have real answers, so what is it? That's a soft science. It's made up stuff. It's mushy gushy. It's uh, you know the psychologies and the you know all of that stuff. And uh, you know it's all a bunch of feel good type of sociology. Sociology also doesn't have definitive answers. So a scientist is going to say "Feh" to sociology and stuff like that. But he says, when it comes to Torah, the fact that we don't have definitive answers, that actually ends up being the exaltedness of, of the Torah, is specifically, as he's going to explain, that actually ends up being demonstrative of the greatness of Torah, the exact thing that it doesn't have a definitive answer. Now, how does that work? How is Rev Huttner going to go ahead and spin that, the fact, this idea that the lack of definitive answers is something which is indicative of the of its greatness? So now he explains, here he goes into a beautiful uh, explanation of the difference between the covenant of Noah and the associated wisdom with that and the covenant of Avram Avin, or the covenant of the Torah and its associated wisdom. So he says, as we explained, he bris Noach, he bris Hashmira, because the covenant of Noach, as we mentioned last week, is the covenant of maintenance. So Baruch Hu said to Noach after the flood, this is the world, this is the universe as it exists now, I'm not manipulating it anymore. I'm not changing the seasons. I'm not destroying everything anymore. None of those things are going to be relevant anymore. Everything, all of the rules of nature which exist now are going to continue working and following these laws and these parameters forever. And therefore, and therefore, when one is studying the physical sciences, Again, the physics and the biology and the uh, the chemistry and all of those things, things which have to do with specific laws of nature, so what, what's the pursuit? In Yono, who litfos the pursuit is to grasp with one's intellect, in order to grasp reality. That's what scientists are looking to discover. They're, 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 it's the pursuit of reality. What are the rules of nature? How does nature work? How do things interact with one another? But all of that is, it's the, it's the pursuit to discern and identify what rules of nature are going to apply. So for a long time, I, I guess before Newtonian physics or whatever those things are, so there was a certain perception of how the world works, and then that changes, and then it changes, is it... Um, um, 
forget the terminology, is it sun-centered universe or it's an earth-centered universe. So all of that was just an exercise in trying to discern what is reality. What is the reality of our existence? It's trying to define that. And all of that is kefishihi omedes be'ena. And all scientists could do is they could measure what exists in front of them at this time. That's the pursuit. That, that's the pursuit of the sciences. But that's not the pursuit of Torah. But when it comes to the covenant of Avram and the associated wisdom that's, uh, that goes together with it, Asher Tochana Inyan Shel Shmira Al so as we mentioned last week, it is not the pursuit, the, the, the covenant of Torah is not to maintain the world or the universe as is, but rather, but rather the idea is, as we talked about, it's to lead to it's to lead to resurrection, it's the creation of a new universe. It's a creation of new laws of, uh, of nature and an entirely new universe, which doesn't yet exist in this moment. So as we're studying Torah now, it's going to eventually lead in the future to a Tchias HaMesim, but that future event of Tchias HaMesim doesn't exist in the moment. So therefore, since it doesn't exist in the moment, it doesn't have strict parameters as far as what its definition is and what we're going to be able to identify and measure and quantify. And therefore, since we're not talking about something which exists currently in our reality, so so therefore, the nature in the content and the character of the wisdom of this covenant, it's not an exercise, it's not the pursuit of trying to identify reality as it exists now, but rather, El Chakiras Hadrachi Vakochas Hapal Mahalachayitzira Shalmetzios Achadasha. But rather, it is a pursuit of trying to create what will be the laws of nature in the time of Tchias Amesin. So we're trying to put in place. We're trying to figure out what things can we put in place so that eventually we'll get to that new reality, which is called Tchias Amesin. Mer Haomedesli Skayim which ultimately will exist, which is not going to become reality until we get to that future date, the coming of, the, uh, of, of Mashiach and the, uh, and, the, uh, and, the, uh, and resurrection. So by definition, our wisdom, our Torah, is not trying to discern. It's not trying to uh, define the existence, the reality as it exists today, it's much more future-oriented about what we're going to be able to create through our Torah study, through the creativity of our Torah study, which will then become part of that future existence, which we call the era of Tchias HaMesim. So it's not present-focused, it's future-focused. But since we're not yet in the future, that's why it doesn't have those strict laws of nature, those strict laws which... Two plus two always has to equal four. Is this something which is mutter or is it aser? So one rav will tell you it's mutter. Another rav will tell you that it's aser. One rav will tell you it's lechatchi lemahadrin mina mahadrin. Another one will say it's only b'diavad. Another one will say yergval yavor. You should give up your life rather than go ahead and do that. And they're all answering the same shaila, because since that that era, those rules of nature of tchias hamesin don't yet exist, and we help create 
through our, our, our creativity of Torah study, we help create what that future existence is going to be like. So therefore, that's why you cannot have definitive answers yet, because it's still in formation. Committee information, like you see at the bottom of things. So committee information, so I can't tell you what it's, the final product is going to look like yet, because it's still in formation. And therefore, since it's still in formation, that ends up being part of the, as he's going to explain further, that ends up being the godless of Torah. The greatness of Torah is that we have not yet set limitations on it yet. Sciences have limita- strict limitations on them. Two plus two can only be four. Laws of nature, you can't, you know, whatever, whatever the, you know, force and, uh, and pull and all of those different, uh, all of those different rules, which I, you know, it's been a long time for me, not as long as for some of you, but you guys have, <laughs> are more up to date on those things than, uh, than when we uh, cheated our way through science in high school. But these things are, all of these rules, they are, they always were, and they always will be, because these are things which, which, which cannot really be violated. Those, but the, those, the, the existence of those strict rules and those strict parameters means that there's not really much room for, you can't be a creative, uh, uh, you can't be creative in addition math. You can't be creative when you're doing subtraction. Either you did it correctly or you did it incorrectly, but there's no room for creativity as far as, as far as that is concerned. But in Torah, there's tremendous room, tremendous uh, 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 flexibility in terms of what can be created and what ideas can be pieced together. And that's why that ends up being a godless of Torah. It's not something which diminishes from its status but it's something which ends up being one of its defining great uh, elements, great uh, uh, components, is the fact that it's not strictly defined. And now he says, now now that we understand what the Ramban meant in terms of the difference between the sciences and the the pursuit of the wisdom of Torah, the different characters of those wisdoms, so now he says, now we could go back to another point which we had mentioned in our series of questions that in the uh, the first class about from this uh, from this mimer and that is so Futner had pointed out that there are two brachas that we make on somebody who is knowledgeable there's a bracha which is said on a jewish torah scholar and then there is a bracha which is said on somebody who when you see somebody who is a, a, an expert in the sciences and the language of those two brachas were uh, were different from one another. And now so, explains with Whitner. He says that Afalpi Shofas Hanifgash Ima, even though it's true that when you bump into, when you come across somebody who's a renowned expert in the sciences, so that's something which warrants a bracha. You, you say a, a bracha is to be recited, chazal instituted, a bracha to be recited when you see somebody who is a great uh, scientist. Mikomakom, nonetheless, and this is one the diuk that he makes, and it's fascinating to consider, he says, Im Yisrael. Let's say you have a Jewish scientist. If you remember when we did this, I, uh, I, I, we used Einstein as the example. So Einstein is a great scientist, but he's not a great Torah scholar, but he's a great scientist. So the question is, does one make the bracha on scientists when you see Einstein? If you see Einstein, would you say the bracha or not? So he says that if the in the event that the person that you bump into, who's a renowned scientist, happens to be a Jew, 
הרי בעלה של החכמה מפקיע את חכמסו מדי ברכה. The very fact that is a Jew who possesses that scientific knowledge, that's a reason to not say a bracha on him. Let me say that again. When it turns out that you see a, a secular Jewish scientist, so obviously you're not going to make a bracha on him that he's a Torah scholar because he's not. But not only that, you wouldn't even say a bracha on him, uh, 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 the fact that he is in possession of a, a huge amount of scientific knowledge. So what you, what, what, the, the scenario you want to put yourself in is you're in the audience when uh, the Nobel Prizes are being distributed. And every time they give a Nobel Prize for one of the sciences to a non-Jew, you say the bracha. But when they give one of the Nobel Prizes in the sciences to a Jew, you do not say the bracha. Now, why is that so? If the bracha is on the, the, the manifestation in the possession of scientific knowledge, what difference does it make whether the, the person who possesses that knowledge is Jewish or not Jewish? It's on the sciences. So if it's on the sciences, why don't you go ahead and say it regardless of the source? Yes, Alan. What if, what if he's also, what if he's a religious Jew, that, you know, not just a secular Jew? So if, if he is a, a gadol hador in Torah, then you would say the bracha on him being a gadol hador in, you'd say the Torah uh, bracha, but you still would not say, Refunder is asserting, in the post can support this, that no matter, uh, that you would never say the bracha on a scientist if the scientist is Jewish. It's reserved for non-Jewish scientists. You would never say it on a Jewish scientist. Now, he says, so how do we explain that? If the bracha is designed for the, the possessor of that wisdom, of that scientific knowledge, so what difference does it make whether he's Jewish or not Jewish? Now, we're not, we're not a bunch of racists against Jews. Jewish, halacha is racist against Jews. So how exactly do we explain this idea? So he says, let me give you, I'll give you an example. He says... So when you make a bracha on besamim, on something which has a good smell, So although Chazal said, just like before you eat something, you have to say a bracha on the, the appropriate bracha on that food, when you drink something, you have to say an appropriate bracha on that beverage. So when you smell something, whether it's a flower, whether it's a fruit, whether it's a root or something like that, so there's going to be a bracha which you say on that thing, but but there are limitations. As he's going to explain, we don't say a bracha on everything which has a good smell. What's, what's the hagbala? What are the parameters? What are the limitations? So he says, the halach is, you do not, we do not say the bracha, we'll just say for simplicity, we only say a bracha, on those things which have a good smell, which are designed to produce a good smell. That's their primary function. So if you have... Uh, Can I ask you something? So does that mean that like something like somebody mixes two fruit together that is not pure, like it was made that way, then that would be considered not um, a, a pure smell? Um, so we're going to talk about fruit in one second before you even get to the mixing them together. So, uh, so you'll, you'll see in a moment, Malki. So if you go into an incense store, so an incense store, everything in the incense store is there to produce a smell. That's, that's why you have incense, is to make a smell. So if you walk into such a store, so you would go ahead and you're going to go ahead and make a brach on that because that's what its, pur- that's what its purpose is. But 
But let's say you have something which does have a good smell, but that's not really what its primary purpose is. It's not its primary usage. So then, ein mevarchin aleim afilim lemaisa nimtzabem reachatov. You would not go ahead and smell them, even if they happen to have a good smell to them. So let's say you make yourself a cup of coffee, right? So you make yourself a cup of coffee. So cup of, if you're a coffee drinker, a good cup of coffee has a wonderful smell to it, has a ro- wonderful aroma to it. But what's the purpose of that cup of coffee? Is it there for aromatherapy or it's there to get as much caffeine into your veins as you possibly can uh, as quickly as you can? So we know, those of us who are coffee drinkers, is the real purpose is to get the coffee into your system. It's not the smell. So the smell of the coffee is tuffel, is secondary, is subordinate to the primary purpose of the coffee, which is to drink it. And the same thing is true, going back to your example, Malki, the same thing is true with regards to fruit, that there may be fruit which has a delicious smell to it, but the primary purpose of the fruit is consumption, not consmelshin, or whatever the equivalent uh, word would be. It's not to go ahead and to smell the, uh, the fruit. It, you may go ahead and do that, but that's not really its primary purpose. Its primary purpose is really consumption. And therefore, since the smell is secondary, you don't make a bremenei samim or the equivalent bracha on a fruit which is designed for, which is for consumption. Wait a minute. Yeah. That means that like the esrog is really for the bracha and not for the consumption. So maybe that means that you shouldn't make a bracha on eating it if someone does choose to eat it. Well, if you decide to eat it, then you'll make a bracha on eating it because now you've made it into a food. But the post- but your purpose, the main purpose of it is smell it for the bracha. When you're taking glue of an eser, it's just to hold yeah. it. No, you don't. You don't. You don't have to smell it. May, it, may, it may actually be also to smell uh, yeah. during during okay. sukkahs. Yeah, but its primary purpose is just to hold it, hold it in your hands. Right. So what I'm saying is that some people use it for um, the summon. They put the cloves oh, into and, and, the... And, and after sukkahs, when you go ahead and then right. purpose it. Towards a right, so the yeah. purpose of it is smell, meaning right. that, that, that if someone purpose. eats it, they choose to eat it. If they decide that they are going to get a big bite out of it, not make it into jelly or something, then there really shouldn't be a bracha on it because its purpose is for the smell. It, the purpose was for smell. Once you decide to eat it, now you've repurposed it for food. It's so what about the opposite way that you just said? So right. So in the event that you now designate it for smell, you take your esrog after the after yantif, and you do that uh, that project where you you know you poke holes and you put the uh, the cloves into the thing. So as it shrinks, it shrinks around and holds the uh, the cloves in place. So at that point, you've now redesignated it so that it's only for smell. So you can take a fruit and you can designate it for smell. But if you're about to eat the fruit and you would just take a, a whiff of it beforehand, you say, that's a delicious smelling orange, and then go ahead and bite in. So at that moment, the purpose of the orange was not the smell. The purpose of the orange was eating. You just happen to smell it along the way, but that's that's not really what it was. What, what its purpose was for at that moment. You were planning on eating it. Um, so he says, right. Did you say a minute ago that it's austere to smell the esrog on sukkahs? Yeah, so apparently come Sukkot time next year, uh, we'll give a shear on <laughs> smelling the esrog on on uh, on Sukkot, whether you're allowed or you're not allowed, or what exactly the parameters of that uh, of that are. It's actually an, a very interesting discussion, um, but not for tonight. 
Um, you guys are way I know you guys are thinking that on Hanukkah, Beis Shammai, Beis Sil, talk about one to eight and eight to one, and the way the Korbanos are brought, so you're connecting those two Yom and Tovin together, I understand, but I, I have to put the limits somewhere along the way and say uh, some of the stuff we have to make, uh, we have to make progress. So he says that this distinction, understanding this distinction about whether something is its primary function or its secondary function, and you only make a brach on its primary purpose, not its secondary purpose. So once we understand that concept, says Rav Hutner, he says, So he says the same thing is going to be true when it comes to wisdom. And that is, he says the mind of a Jew is purpose, is design, is the creation of Olam Haba, is the creativity of that which emerges from the study of Torah, which creates new worlds rather than just discerns what is already here in our present world. And now, the im. Uh, Right. Now, if you take that Jewish brain and rather than utilizing it in the pursuit of the uh, of creating the new world of rather you go ahead and use the brain to go ahead and discern what is the reality of today, not towards the creation of the future, but to discern the laws of nature which exist today. So what you're doing is So you're utilizing the brain and the, the potential wisdom which is there, the intellect which is there, you're using it for a secondary purpose rather than its primary purpose. The primary purpose for a Jew is to use his brain to pursue Torah. A secondary purpose of the brain would be to discern the sciences. But as we said, we only make a bracha when something is being used for its primary purpose, not for its secondary purpose. So when a Jew uses his intellect in the pursuit of the sciences, that is a secondary function, a secondary use of the brain, rather than the primary uh, use of the brain, and we don't make a bracha on that. Umamele says, So when a Jew, when Einstein goes out and specializes in physics, He's not using his intellect for its primary and designed function, but rather he's using it for a secondary purpose. It's an amazing thing for him to say, but Einstein's use of his intellect, as great as it was, it was secondary to what it should have been. That's not what its purpose was for. Because there's a rule that we have, which is that uh, something which is secondary does not warrant a bracha. So therefore, when you see a Jewish scientist, we don't make a bracha because that's not what his mind was designed for. His mind was designed for Torah, not for the sciences. And therefore, since his mind is being used in the pursuit of a secondary purpose, so we say, it's nice, we appreciate that wisdom, but it's not going to rise to the level where we would actually say a bracha on that because that's not its primary purpose. Okay. Now, he says, brings it now, we get uh, closer to Hanukkah, and now he says, he quotes a Pasuk. This he didn't quote at the beginning, but there's a Pasuk, which I think it's a Pasuk in Tehillim. He says, because with you, God, is the source of life, in your light, we see light. 
Now that phrase, in your light we see light, that sounds like a duh. Where else are you going to see light other than in light? You see light and light. So what exactly does that mean when we say, in your light, God, do we see light? So he says, um, so he explains that there's actually two different ways to be able to discern that there's a light on in the room. Let's just think of it in terms of a bulb. There's two ways to discern whether there is a bulb on in a room. And that is either roim esasviva mipnesha makam mu'ar. So it may very well be that there's a light fixture where you can't actually see the bulb. But when you look around the room, you see there's a bookshelf over here and there's a bookshelf over here and you see sfarim around me without seeing the bulb in the room where I'm sitting, you know that there's a light on. Because how else would you be able to see the furniture and the sfarim behind me unless there was a light on? So you don't see the bulb, but you know 100% with certainty that there is a light on over here. Maybe my shining complexion, but it's going to. But they can be pretty certain that it's going to be the. Uh, it's going to be the light from a bulb. Oh, shum or or it's also possible you may not be able to see anything whatsoever. or But what you could do is you could stare into the bulb. Now it happens to me when you stare into the bulb, you won't be able to see anything else because you'll you know you'll have that uh, you know whatever that happens to your eyes when you go ahead and you stare at a bulb. But you could also tell that there's a light on in the room simply by looking at the light directly. So now he says, both in Arishon, in the first way, when you're looking at this farm and the bookshelves behind me, you don't see the source of the light; you see a derivative of the light. The fact that you can see the bookshelves, you can see this farm, that is proof that there must be light without seeing the source of it. But but when you stare directly into the bulb, that is being able to discern the presence of the light simply by seeing the light. I see the light. So that already is, is enough to be able to, uh, to, uh, to say that. So now that we know that there's two different ways to be able to see the light, I could see it directly, or I could see other things which are reflecting the light from its place of origin, from the light bulb of origin. So now he says, now we can understand the passage that we uh, that this paragraph begins with of Baorcha Nira, or in your light we see light, meaning Hamishbat Baorcha Nira, or Balahotzi Miyado Shalafenarisho. So when we say to God, in your light, we see light, what it's coming to say is, I don't discern your presence, God, by seeing your reflection off of other things. I see your light, God, because I see the light directly. Kiner mitzvah Torah or. Torah is considered to be the light itself. So I can discern God from the direct source. He is the bulb rather than seeing the reflection of him, how it, it, we can see everything else, which indicates there must be a God, but not looking at God directly. To Lomar, in other words, as Oro Yisbarach, when it comes to the light of God, we don't discern God's presence and God's wisdom by having proof that there must be light. That's the reflection principle. We're not discerning God's presence because we see a reflection of God and other things which exist in the universe. But rather, our perception of God, our knowledge of God's presence, our, our connection with Torah is being able to see the light directly. 
That's what we mean when we say that in your light, we're going to see the light, meaning we can see directly to the light, the origin of that light, rather than just how the light reflects off of other things. And he says that and being that the source of life derives from you, emanates from you. So gam tfisas orcha so what we want is that when we want to discern, when we want to talk about God's light, what we're talking about is the ability to be able to see the light of God directly, not the reflection of God's light, how it, uh, how it uh, illuminates things in the universe. In other words, and, and Refutner doesn't highlight this um, so strongly, but I will, and that is, is that uh, if if you uh, if you uh, uh, have some uh, uh, intermediate experience in uh, in in uh, hashkafa, in philosophical ideas in Judaism, so you know that and it comes up on Hanukkah very often. There's what's referred to as chachma hachitzonis and chachma hapnimis. There's inner wisdom and there's outer wisdom. So there are ten. Uh, we know that there's the aseres hadibros, ten ten uh, statements of God. Which by which he was able to give over the Torah, the parallel to that is the Asar Mamaro Shinivrabem Esa Olam, that God had ten utterances by which he created the universe. So the fact that there's ten utterances which create the universe, and there's Aseras Adibros which give over the Torah, ten and ten obviously is not a coincidence. It's very specific that there that there's going to be a parallel between them, and Bali Machshava. Uh, spend a lot of time drawing a lot of parallels between Maimed Har Sinai and Matan Torah and creation itself, terminology and phrases and concepts as they parallel one another, because they're two sides of the same coin. There is the physical universe, which exists around us, that was created, that's the gracious story, is the creation of the physical universe. But the physical universe at the end of the day is just the physical manifestation of the spiritual universe, which is the flip side. That is Matan Torah. So there's a spiritual world, and there's a physical world, and they're flip sides of one another, and they're inseparable from one another, but it is possible for a person to spend their whole lives just seeing the physical universe and not knowing that there's anything beneath the surface. So the pursuit of sciences, the hard sciences, the, the chemistry and the physics and the biology and the math and all of that engineering all of that are the hard scientists, sciences. Those are manifestations of God's presence, but you're not seeing the light directly. You're seeing the reflection of God's light, the reflection of that spirituality as it's manifests itself in the universe. So I could study the universe and see God, but it's like the same way you could see bookshelves behind me and you can see Sfarim by me, not because you're actually seeing the light, but because you know there must be light there, because otherwise, how would those things exist? How would you be able to see that those things exist? So science, is, that's why ultimately, at the end of the day, science and Torah have to be able to coincide, because they're two sides of the same coin. They're not two separate areas of wisdom. They're two, they're two different manifestations of God, of God's existence, of God's creation of, of, of those things. And therefore, being that those two things go side by, side by side, so that's why the difference between somebody who pursues Torah wisdom or somebody per, per, per pursues scientific wisdom is such a profound difference in pursuit 
because one person is searching for the source of everything, that's Baorcha Nira Or, and the other are just looking at the reflection of those things and trying to see if they could make it make sense out of the world just from this outer manifestation of it and not recognizing anything which is going on inside. It's like going to a doctor and he's going to diagnose you just by looking at the outside of your body and he's not going to pay attention to anything which is happening internally. He ignores that you have a heart. He ignores that you have kidneys. He ignores you have a digestive system. He's just going to go ahead and treat you based on what he sees superficially on the outside of your body. Well, that's crazy. You know, obviously, you're, going to, uh, you're not going to be able to get to the real issue that a person may have medically if all you're going to do is look at them from the outside and think you're going to be able to figure everything out, uh, everything out from the outside when there's an entire uh, uh, internal existence, an internal body which you have, which cannot see, be seen from the outside. We only see sometimes expressions of that. So that is what we are pursuing over here. And now that we know that there's this idea, that in your light, we want to see the light, meaning it's a desire to be able to see God's existence directly rather than indirectly. We want to see the source and not just a reflection. So now he says we can swing it back around to what he began with, the opening sentence of that these candles are Kodesh. We have no right to be able to use them. They're only there for looking at. So he asked the question at the beginning, when you tell me that they're Kodesh, that the candles are sacred, and therefore you're not allowed to use them, so that I understand. Being that they're Kodesh, the consequence of being Kodesh is that you're not allowed to use them. But why do you then have to go on in the next phrase, give me a heter to look at them? Looking at them isn't usage. The only thing which is also because they're Kodesh is to use them. So looking at them doesn't constitute usage. And since it doesn't constitute usage, so obviously you're allowed to go ahead and you're allowed to look at it. So being that, it's clear that you're allowed to go ahead and look at it. Why in this sentence did Chazal feel the need to say that you're allowed to go ahead and look at them? Why would I think that there are so anyways that you need to tell me that there is a heter to look at them? So explains the footner that if you want to zohu, if you want to know the inner meaning, the deeper meaning of this, and this is where it will be helpful starting next week, starting uh, next week Monday, when you start to light, when we start lighting Hanukkah candles, and we'll say that paragraph of Haneros Halalu. So he says, "Ki oro shel ner Hanukkah," because the light of the Hanukkah candles, doleku lios nitpas bederch when you look at the candles and you're looking specifically at the flame, what that's supposed to remind you of is, is that our pursuit of wisdom, our pursuit of God is to go to the core, the source of everything, which is God directly, in your light we see light. Directly, that's what we are pursuing. And we're not going to try and pursue God or wisdom through the reflection of God as it manifests itself in the physical universe, through the laws of sciences, the, the laws of science and whatnot. Because, and therefore we say that that these the, the purpose of the candles is not to use them. Using them would be like a secondary function of them. The purpose of the candles is to be the source of light, to remind us that we have access to the source of light itself. So it's not a heter to look at them. 
it's an instruction and it's a highlight of the fact that these candles represent the wisdom of Torah, and the wisdom of Torah in the bris of Avram Avinu, and all of those things represents our direct access to the origins of the universe and the the, the essential part, the, the ikar part of the universe, rather than the sciences, which is all secondary and is all just a reflection of that light, but isn't something which has importance uh, in and of itself. Now, why do we need to go ahead and emphasize this idea? And we'll try and do this uh, quickly. Because he says, So So remember, on Hanukkah, we don't simply light the menorah. We light the the menorah because it represents the victory that the Jews had over the Greeks. But it's not the military victory, which is so exciting for us that we had over the Greeks, the fact that we're able to get rid of them and throw them out of the base of Mikdash. The bigger victory we had was that there was this major philosophical debate which is going on in the world at that time. There was the wisdom of Torah on the one hand versus the wisdom of the Greeks on the other hand. And Greek wisdom was very much rooted in what you see is what you get. It was the sciences. It was the the strength of the body. It was all having to do with what we consider to be a reflection of the uh, the what is uh, most important, but not what's most important itself. But what the Greeks were trying to do is who halachats hamake esachachmos halalu dorsos hein agabi chachmas tamudenu. What the Greeks were doing was they were asserting that their wisdom is better than our wisdom. Their wisdom is more powerful. Their wisdom has definitive answers. Their wisdom has laws of nature, which you follow, and you'll get the same answer every time. And they were insistent that their wisdom is greater than ours, and they were trying to impose their wisdom on us. They wanted to detach us from our connection to Torah, specifically in the pursuit and in the promotion of their approach to things, their perception of things. And how do they go ahead and do so? How do they prove that they were correct? Because they said, listen, in our pursuit of wisdom, in our wisdom, we have definitive answers. Two plus two is going to be four. You combine this molecule with this molecule, it's going to create a new molecule, and it's going to do that the same time, the same way, every time you combine those two uh, to mol- those, those molecules. So those things are demonstrative, the Greeks claim, of the greatness of our wisdom that we have definitive answers, and therefore our wisdom is greater than yours, and we defeated them by saying our wisdom is greater, because our wisdom is or that we see the origin of the light, in the origin of Torah, the origin of the universe, not merely a reflection of that as it's manifest uh, in our, uh, before our eyes in the physical universe, and therefore our, our wisdom is much greater. So hapurkan, the redemption, hapnimi midrisas chutzbazu, so how did we actually, uh, were we were redeemed from this oppression in terms of whose wisdom is greater and more powerful and, and better? That is the recognition, the living recognition, the active recognition. Is the awareness, is the, is the realization that our wisdom, our wisdom meaning Torah, is not a derivative of anything else. Science is a derivative of the existence of the universe. But the knowledge of Torah is not a derivative of something else. It's not secondary to something else. It's not a reflection of something else. 
But rather, our wisdom is the source of the creativity, which is going to be a new universe, which is going to be the universe of Tchias HaMesim. So the reason why we don't have strict rules and we don't have definitive answers is because we're still in the creative process. We're still in the process of creating what that universe is going to be. And that's what makes us uh, our, our wisdom better. Vrak Bazeh, and it's in that, it, that understanding that our wisdom leads to Tchias HaMesim, which doesn't yet exist, and it's specifically that which gives the greatness of our wisdom, like the Ramban said, that we don't have definitive answers. And that ultimately is what the, uh, the celebration of Hanukkah is really about, is the is the access that we have to the direct wisdom of Torah and the covenant and all of those things which are related to that, rather than this superficial uh, wisdom, which the sciences are going to present to us, which are merely a reflection of something else, but not something which is, uh, which is, uh, which is, uh, uh, which is definitive. And I'll just leave you with one last thought. Rav Hutner mentions, as we said, it's uh, his yard site is tonight, is Shomashev uh, Nuliya. But the, the uh, that uh, Rav Hutner says elsewhere that the, if you remember from the Mishnayis in Chagiga, so up until a certain point in Jewish history, right at the beginning of the Tanayim, so whenever there was a machlokas between scholars, so they would debate the matter, see if they could resolve it. If it couldn't be resolved, so it would just get pushed up the, uh, the, 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 the ladder till eventually it got to Sanhedrin, and Sanhedrin would paskin, and then that became binding for everybody. Once the Sanhedrin issued their opinion, so there was no disputing that whatsoever. Somebody disputed that as a Zakin Mamre is the rebellious elder who would be executed for that crime, because it was a very serious thing to go ahead and try and undermine the authority of the Sanhedrin. In the era of Hanukkah, of the Greeks, that was the first time in Jewish history where a machlokas arose, which could not be resolved. This is the first machlokas in the mission of their list that this machlokas, this first machlokas, it lists, I think, five generations of Tanayim who went ahead and argued about the exact same point because this was the first machlokas in the history of Chalisa. And this is the darkness which the Greeks tried to impose on us. They wanted to impose darkness. They thought by creating machlokas in Klal Yisrael that that is going to shut down Torah and that is going to weaken our grasp of Torah. And then they will be victorious. They will win out that because their science is going to prevail because we now have machlokas. You can't have machlokas again in addition. Two plus two equals four. You can't argue. Nobody could get up and say, really, I think two plus two is five or two plus two is three. They're just wrong. They're flat out wrong. Two plus two could only be four. So there is no machlokas. They thought that that is the greatness of their wisdom. But what it turns out that they did, or Futner pointed out, is they succeeded somewhat in darkening our eyes from Torah in the sense that we now have machlokas, which cannot be resolved. But you know what happens when there's machlokas, which cannot be resolved? Torah grows exponentially. Because now there's no longer one opinion you have to study. Now you have to study both opinions because both opinions are true. And then in the next generation, it goes from two opinions to four opinions, to eight opinions, to 16 opinions, to 32 opinions, and onwards and onwards. And there's now this huge explosion of Torah as a result of the existence of Machlokas. And that doesn't diminish the Torah. 
it actually increases the potential of Torah, and now Torah is even broader and wider than it existed than it existed before. And that's why you go now to a, you know you have these computer programs which have hundreds of thousands of svarim which you could go ahead and you could do that trace itself back to the Greeks. The Greeks are responsible for hundreds of thousands of svarim because if we're not for them, we wouldn't have machlokas, and then everything would be straightforward. So all of that is the, is the the greatness that we have because. What we're doing is we're creating a reality which will be at the time of Tchiasa Mason. But at the end of the day, or we want to see your light God by having direct access to it, not seeing a mere reflection of that. And that's why when we say that these candles are Kodesh, we're not allowed to use them. Ela Lirosim Bavad is not a heter to look at them. We're supposed to gaze and meditate on them because those things remind us of the philosophical victory that we had over the Greeks and the fact that we have direct access to the light of Torah rather than seeing the light of Torah as a mere reflection in the physical world as it manifests in the, in the sciences. And that's really what, uh, in many ways, that's what the victory of Hanukkah is about. That's what the celebration that's what the Simcha is. It's a celebration of Torah rather than a celebration of the military victory. The military victory at the end of the day was really just secondary to, uh, to the philosophical victory that we had that the Torah prevailed. So hopefully this will uh, give you something to think about at least uh, one night. Uh, the first night of uh, Hanukkah and you say Hanera Salalo, but maybe you'll get uh, a, few nights, uh, a few nights out of that. Thank All you, right. Rabbi. So, you Thursday, we don't have class. We're off this week. But next okay. week, we should be on the regular, uh, regular schedule.